Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, now in life, there are, there are lots of things, aren't there, which are really unpleasant, but, but they're necessary. We, we don't particularly like to think of them. They're unpleasant, but, but they're necessary. Um, feet, for example. We've been thinking about feet, haven't we, in the last few weeks. I think they are unpleasant, but necessary. Laura and I used to go on walks. We, we lived in St. Albans, and, and we'd go on walk. We'd try and find a river, go for a walk by a river. I think that'd be lovely. But you know what's always by rivers? Sewage works. And you'd walk past these sewage, and it's very pleasant, and then you hit a sewage work, and it's very unpleasant. But something that's necessary, unpleasant, but necessary. There are many things, aren't there? And because they're unpleasant, we don't like to think about them. We don't like to mention them. But we're glad that they're there. Feet is another example of that. You need your feet. Sewage works. You need a sewage works. I'm putting in some jokes at the beginning because actually where we're going the rest of the time is very somber and sober. Um, Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Unpleasant but necessary. And we don't think about it. It was interesting, isn't it? Right at the beginning, you might have noticed that we sang a version of the Apostles' Creed. And what was the one thing we didn't sing about? Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead. We just don't think about it, do we? In pretty much every book in the New Testament, it is mentioned. And yet, when was the last time you gave it some thought? When was the last time we said much about it from the front? Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Well, look, let's think about what it means. Let's try and take it on, on, on two things. We're going to think about Jesus' coming, and then we're going to think about judgment is coming. And so if you've got a Bible, you're going to need it this morning. We're going to be flicking around a few places, nearly all of it in Matthew. Um, but if you do have a Bible, it would be great to have that open in front of you. So Jesus is coming. In Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is talking about his second coming, particularly in Matthew chapter 24, he says certain things must happen. And once those things have happened, then, he says, he will return. I'm oversimplifying this, but it's, it's almost as if there is a, a, a kind of a cosmic to-do list. And the last thing on that list is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I, we might get a picture of it here. Uh, item one is creation. Tick. God has done that. Item two, the, the fall. Tick. That has happened. Item three, promise a saviour. Tick. Item four, send the saviour. Item five, saviour dies. Item six, saviour resurrected. Item seven, saviour ascended. In item, then item eight, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 that the temple in Jerusalem will be judged. Well, that happened in AD 70. Tick. And so you see, the only thing left on this cosmic to-do list is the return of the saviour, Jesus Christ. So do you see what that means? That Jesus is coming. There is, there is in some ways nothing left for God to do in the big picture of things than to send his son back. And that means the return of Jesus is more certain than anything else. More certain than us finishing our service this morning is the return of Jesus. More certain than you taking your next breath is the return of Jesus. Jesus coming back it is the most certain thing in the world. And when it happens, we won't miss it. Jesus' second coming won't be like his first. If you remember his first coming, it happened in a kind of corner of the earth, 
Only a few shepherds and a few uh, travelers from the east really knew about it. But Jesus' second coming will be visible and universal and it will be unmistakable. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 24, a little bit earlier on from our reading. Verse 29, I think it will be on the screen. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, I'm not sure that Jesus is saying that when he comes, the sun will literally be darkened and the stars will literally fall from the sky. Maybe. But the kind of language is often used in the Old Testament to describe real historical events, events that are cataclysmic, events that in some ways were defining moments in the history of the world, or at least the history of God's plan. So, so here is Jesus saying, when I return, it will be cataclysmic. It, it will redefine the world. And it will be visible, universal, and unmistakable. People won't be left scratching their heads thinking, was that it? No, in verse 30, Jesus says, all peoples will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. All people will know when Christ has returned. If we are alive when it happens, we will know about it. The coming of Jesus will be visible, universal, and unmistakable. But there is one thing we don't know, and that's when. Jesus is very clear on this, still in Matthew 24 in our reading, verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. You see, Jesus couldn't be clearer. No one knows the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor even the sun, which raises some interesting questions. But you see, that means we need to be careful about those who try and pinpoint the return of Christ. Those who want to say, look at that event happening there, look at this moment in history here, look at that war and look at that disaster, you can conclude that the return of Christ must be imminent any moment. Look, if there's one application you take away from this point, it's this. Never go to YouTube to find out about the return of Christ. Okay, YouTube is amazing. If you want to fix a tap, if you want to extend the back of your house, if you want to look at cute pictures of, of cats, YouTube is brilliant for that. But if you want to know about the second coming of Christ, don't ever go on YouTube. If you want to know, ask someone, ask me, and I'll happily point you to some books or some talks that you can listen to but there are so many strange, peculiar, and odd ideas which just go so directly against what Jesus is teaching here and lead to such confusion that you don't want to go to YouTube to learn your eschatology, the return of Christ. Jesus says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
that the, the, the return of Jesus will be like the weather on a British holiday. This is the last joke, by the way. You, you know it will rain, you just don't know when. We know Jesus will return, we just don't know when. And I think knowing that, knowing that Jesus is coming, well, that must impact our lives now, mustn't it? But how? See, maybe there's a little bit of you that thinks, well, if I really believe that, that at any moment Jesus could return, that, that I need to be doing something significant with my life when it happens, something that would please Jesus if he rocked up and saw me doing it. Maybe I should give more of my money to the church or, or, or more of my time to sharing the gospel. Maybe I should take more risks and tell more people. I, I should make my life count in some way. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus announces to his disciples, I'm going, but I'm coming back, he then tells them how to live. He tells them how to be ready. And what does being ready look like? Is it giving away all your possessions to the poor? Is it working yourself to death to try and grow the kingdom of God or, or giving up your job and becoming a missionary? Some of those things may well be right and good, but that isn't exactly what Jesus says. Again, it was in our reading. Have a look at 24 verse 44. Jesus says, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Being ready... For Jesus' return in this parable means being faithful. Verse 45, who then is the faithful servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household? It is the faithful servant who is the one who gets on with the job that his master has given him to do. And look what that job is. It's not kind of expanding the property or bringing in more workers or investing the master's money. No, look at verse 45. The faithful servant's job is to give the other servants their food at the proper time. The faithful servant is basically a babysitter. It's very ordinary, isn't it? Jesus is coming, and how does he want us to live as we wait? How can we be ready for his return? By being faithful in the ordinary. Faithful in the tasks that Jesus has given us to do. Faithful as a friend to those that Jesus has put around me, listening and, and, and encouraging and serving, and doing so without grumbling. Faithful as a church member, coming along week in and week out on a Sunday, visiting the sick, cooking meals for those who need help, praying for my brothers and sisters, spurring them on to love and good works without grumbling. Faithful as a pastor or an elder to week in and week out love those in the church, to pray for them, to teach them and walk with them all the way to glory. Faithful as a husband or wife, to forsake all others and give myself to my wife or husband, to show patience and gentleness and understanding to one another, to encourage each other to be 
carrying on, keeping on going in their faith. Faithful as an employee, turning up to work each day, doing what is required, being respectful, and so adorning the gospel. There is definitely a time for trying the extraordinary. The other parables around this one, Jesus encourages to think like that sometimes. A time for taking risks and giving up everything to try something big for the kingdom. But first and foremost, what does Jesus call us to? To be faithful in the ordinary duties that he has given us. That's how we can be ready for his return. I don't know why, but this makes me um, think of my mum. When I was growing up, I I remember every Sunday evening, my mum would make the sandwiches for for the week. And if it was just me, that would be quite an effort. But it was me and my three older brothers and my dad as well, and I'm good at maths, that's five of us, five days, that's 25 rounds of sandwiches that she would sit down on a Sunday evening and and probably take an hour or two, I don't know how long it was, but but some length of time to, to get ready. So she'd make these sandwiches, she'd put them in the freezer, and then she'd take out a round for us each day, pop them in our lunch boxes, and then by the time it was lunch, ideally they were defrosted, often not, sometimes over-defrosted, a bit of of water in there as well. But if Jesus returned, and this is what came to my mind, and found my mum spreading those sandwiches, just contentedly, pouring herself out, it's just an example I'm saying, of of her pouring herself out, loving her family, then wouldn't he say, blessed are you who have been faithful in the ordinary? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus is coming. First and foremost, be ready by being faithful in the ordinary. There is a time for the extraordinary, but first and foremost, be faithful in the ordinary. But what happens next? What happens after his return? Well, secondly, judgment is coming. Now, I think we come to some of the hardest truths that Jesus ever taught. In the next chapter, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus continues to teach about his second coming, and he lays out what he will do. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 31. I think it will be on the screen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him... He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. When he returns, one of the first things that Jesus will do is to separate people out one from another. He will make a judgment over every individual's life and then divide people into two groups. It will be a judgment based on how we have lived, how we have loved, what we have said and what we have thought in accordance with the the, the perfect moral standards of Christ himself. And the secrets of our hearts will be made known. As Hebrews chapter 4 says, our lives will be laid bare before Jesus. Maybe let those words sink in. Our lives will be laid bare before Jesus. 
And then Jesus will make a verdict on our lives, either righteous or unrighteous. And once he's shared the verdict, Jesus will then send us to one of two destinations. At the end of Matthew 25, Jesus summarizes, he says in verse 46, then they, the unrighteous, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The righteous will enjoy eternal life with Christ and the Father forever, and the unrighteous will be overcome by eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Again, maybe let those words sink in. The unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment. We rarely think about the coming of Jesus. We think even less about the reality of hell. I know the reaction of some is, well, how can you believe this? How can you believe that Jesus will divide people but, and, and, and based on how they have lived and that he will send some to glory with him and, and some to hell? And maybe that is your reaction and, and perhaps sometimes it's even mine. And I think there is, there is lots that, that I'd want to come back and say at that, but I think my initial reaction is this. How can you not believe it? That, that is, how can you live your life knowing that ultimately there is no final justice? That those clever enough, wealthy enough, well-connected enough to escape justice now will never have to face up to what they've done. How can you live your life knowing that or believing that? It may be easier for us in the West to be dismissive of a final judgment and hell. On the whole, we have good access to a justice system. It's not perfect, but we have good access to it. But those who experience true marginalization, those who are at the mercy of corrupt governments, those who have no voice because their skin is the wrong color or because they are too poor or because they are unborn or because they live in lawless countries, I reckon they would have a very different view about judgment in hell than we do. Let me put it another way. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, not because he is cruel or hard-hearted. No, he comes to judge the living and the dead because his heart melts at the injustice carried out on this earth. And he will not be indifferent to that. Jesus loves us too much not to judge the living and the dead. So what does that coming judgment mean for us? Well, again, we could say lots, but two things. Hope or fear. First, it is possible, more than possible. It is the blessing and the privilege of being a Christian that we can have hope. Not because we will escape this judgment. When Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, that judgment will include Christians. We're not going to be able to kind of sneak through. There's not going to be a backdoor entrance. 
No, Paul writes in Romans 14, verse 12, we will all give an account of ourselves to God. All of us. And so my life will be laid bare before the Lord. My motives and my actions and my words, I will see it all laid out, the good and the bad. The destructive consequences of selfish decisions that I made, and I never really saw what they led to. The times I have grieved the Spirit and our Lord when I have ignored what he has said. But the thing is, I won't need to scrabble around for excuses. I won't need to try and justify myself for each of those terrible actions or motives or whatever. I mean, that would be impossible anyway. No, as a Christian, I will plead the death of Jesus on my behalf. I will point to the nail scarred hands of the one who is judging me and say, I am guilty, but you have forgiven me. I am unrighteous, fallen short of all that you've called me to be, but you have given me your righteousness, your perfect standing before the law. I deserve hell, but on the cross you went there for me. But even so, that, that confidence, and it is a wonderful confidence, won't this process still be deeply uncomfortable for us as Christians? You know, imagine a transcript of your life, a film of your life, including all of your thoughts being played out before you. Wouldn't you find that the most difficult thing to sit through? Wouldn't shame and regret be the dominating emotions at that moment? Perhaps, but I wonder if something else will, will, will well up inside us and banish those thoughts. Gratitude and love. You know, sometimes I, I'm deeply aware of the sin that, that Jesus has cleansed me from. Sometimes it, it haunts me until I, I'm brought to the point of confession. I bring that sin before him and, and I enjoy the assurance of forgiveness. But so often I don't even notice the darkness in my heart or I forget, or I just explain away those actions. But on that day, it will all be clear to me. And if my heart already sings for joy at the mercy of Christ, the sacrifice he's made for me, how much more will it sing on that day when I see for the first time the true extent of his mercy and sacrifice as I see the true extent of my sin? I knew you loved me, Jesus, but I didn't know the half of it. I knew you were merciful, but I didn't realize how merciful. I don't think it will be shame and regret. It will be love and thankfulness that will well up in our hearts. You see, as Christians who are trusting in Jesus, we can look forward to that day with hope. Not because we're any better than anyone else, but because we have trusted in a saviour. But that cannot be true for the non-Christian. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and life everlasting, then I think the only 
rational emotion you can have when you think of this future is fear. Again, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 this time, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says, be afraid. Fear. Because without Christ, the verdict will be guilty. Fear, because without Christ, there is no one else who can be punished in your place. Fear, because without Christ, the only words we will hear from Jesus on that day are Matthew 25, verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal punishment. If you're not a Christian, or it's interesting, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus is talking to his followers. If you were someone who is thinking, I'm not sure I want to keep going with Christ. I'm not sure the whole Christian life is worth it. Please think about that day of judgment and think about those words, depart from me. They are terrifying. My prayer is that if, you're, if you don't put your faith in Christ or, or you don't stick with Christ because of the joy and the life that comes from knowing him, then you would do so because of the fear of what will happen if you don't. The journalist Peter Hitchens was once a, a very vocal atheist until something drew him to Jesus. And at first, it wasn't the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. It wasn't the hope of eternal life in heaven. It was the fear of judgment and hell. In his biography, he talks about visiting an ancient hospital in France where these kind of religious works of art are, painting, are painted on the walls. And he saw a painting of the final judgment. And at first, he scoffed at it. But that feeling changed. I'll pick up a little bit and then we'll put some on the screen for you to, to, to read along as well. He, he writes, still scoffing, I, I peered at the figures fleeing toward the pit of hell. And this time I gaped, my mouth actually hanging open. These people didn't appear remote or from the ancient past. They were my own generation. They were me and the people I knew. A large list of misdeeds ranging from the embarrassing to the appalling, replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned. And then he finishes the account with these words on the screen. I stood in front of this great painting and trembled for the things of which my conscience was afraid and is afraid. Fear is good for us and helps us to escape from great dangers. Those who do not feel it are in permanent peril because they cannot see the risks that lie at their feet. If the offer of life and joy and happiness doesn't draw you to Christ or cause you to stick with Christ, then maybe the fear of judgment will. It is the thing that can stop us falling into eternal peril. Jesus is coming, and when he does, we will hear one of two things. 
Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Or, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Enter the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Do all you can to ensure that it is those last words that you hear. Keep trusting in Christ. He is coming and he will judge.